I want to encourage you now to turn your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians. We continue our study in the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We have been in this book all this year and as I have shared with you in the past, Paul here is writing the fourth letter to the Corinthian church. Even though it's called 2 Corinthians and in chapter 10 he takes a turn in defense of his ministry personally as he shares with them and addresses the issues that the false teachers, the false apostles who have infiltrated the church and brought charges seeking to defame Paul, to discredit Paul. And here he is ending a section and explaining the distinctives of a genuine spiritual leader, a genuine apostle. We begin in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 11. He says, I have become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. Actually, I should have been commended by you, for in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles, even though I am a nobody. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. For in what respect were you treated as inferior to the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not become a burden to you? Forgive me for this wrong. Here, for this third time, I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden to you. For I do not seek what is yours, but you... For your children, for children are not responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. I will most gladly spend and be expended for your souls. If I love you more, am I to be loved less? But be that as it may, I did not burden you myself. Nevertheless, crafty fellow that I am, I took you in by deceit. Certainly I have not taken advantage of you through any of those whom I have sent to you, have I? I urged Titus to go, and I sent the brother with him. Titus did not take advantage of you, did he? Did we not conduct ourselves in the same spirit and walk in the same steps? Let's bow in a word of prayer before we begin our study again this morning. Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks. And Father, we come before your word once again. We pray, Father, that you would cause us to have a reverence for your word. I pray, Father, that you would open the eyes of our heart. We might see great and mighty things which we do not yet know. In Jesus' name, amen. Over the past 20 some odd years, I've met many pastors and church leaders when I've been overseas. Whether it's African church leaders, whether it is leaders from the churches in Cambodia, those who serve in the underground church in China, those who need to hide, those who minister in the prisons in the Philippines, or the pastors that I've met and worked with overseas. Many, most, nearly all of them are humble 
servants. And they display a genuine love. They display a genuine love for the church. They display a genuine love for people. They display a genuine passion for Christ. To them, you see, reciprocation and appreciation and remuneration are not big things on their list. They serve because they love the Lord, despite the conditions they live in, despite the dangers that they face, despite the impoverished standards, despite the suffering they endure, despite for many, many difficulties that they have all for the sake of the cross. And when I've gone to teach pastors overseas, it has been my privilege to be the student. I may teach them the scriptures and I may teach them the things that I've learned in the scriptures, but they teach me by their lives. And it still rings in my ears whether I've sat with them throughout the night until I could not even see their faces they've shared with me. It still rings in my ears their plea. Plea encapsulated perhaps by an underground church leader who said, don't forget about us. And while I can teach them, as I mentioned, the Word of God from the text of the Word, they teach me by their very lives, by what they have been through. They are humble, they love the Lord, they love the church. And many pastors are like that. They sincerely have a genuine love for the church. They have a deep love for the church that Christ suffered and died for. False teachers, false apostles, false shepherds, false leaders aren't like that. When difficulties come, when persecution comes, they'll leave. They'll abandon their flock. They'll leave because one of the benefits you see of persecution, one of the benefits is that it purges. It purges and it separates those who are genuine from those who are false. Whether it's pastors or church leaders or whether it is people in the seats, it purges and purifies the church. These spiritual leaders that I've met, many of them, as I've shared, are true, very genuine. They will guard the church. They will guide the church. They will fight for the church. They will protect the church. And they have a heart that loves the people they serve. And this is the spirit that Paul communicates in this particular passage. It is a passage in which Paul expresses himself here today, his heart as a genuine shepherd. He expresses his love, he defends his integrity, he expresses his own humility in the face of these false teachers who had come into Corinth, seeking to usurp him while he was away. They brought letters of commendation. They set standards and they bragged about all that they had accomplished. And we saw this in the context in the past. What they had promoted in and of themselves, they were trying to elevate themselves, push down Paul and discredit his ministry. And so here we see Paul in the first section in verses 11 and 12 exemplify his humility as a genuine shepherd. His humility as a genuine shepherd when he says, I've become foolish. You yourselves compelled me. I should have been commended by you. I should have been commended by you. He says, you know, these false apostles who had come in had boasted about their credentials. They had papers of recommendation. Paul's defense wasn't going to be a tit for tat 
Well, they've got this, I've got that. They've got this, I've got that. He wasn't going to brag about all of his accomplishments. He wasn't going to brag about all of the churches that he had planted. He wasn't going to name drop of all of the apostles that he knew. He wasn't going to talk about all of the letters that he had written and how they were being circulated among the churches in Asia Minor. He wasn't going to do that, but he was going to brag about what? The suffering that he had faced because Christ would be exemplified through his life. Weaknesses. Even in the sharing of his vision, he shared that he wasn't allowed to speak of it and that God had given him a thorn in the flesh so that he might be humble. All of this wasn't for self-promotion. All of this wasn't self-centered boasting. And boasting, you see, boasting is an act of a fool. Boasting for oneself is an act of a fool. What do we have that we have not received? What do we do that we were not given the grace to accomplish? Nothing. Nothing. It's like I'm doing this backyard patio project. If you've been over to my home and here I am working in the dirt and, and I'm towering over this, this patio and there's a little ant there. And the ant is walking around and he's lost. He has no clue that I'm even there or who I am. And it would be, it would be foolish for that ant to look up. Say, I built this myself. <laughs> To God, we're even smaller, and yet God cares and loves you and I such that He gave His life for you and me. To boast is to be foolish. And Paul's defense is not for himself. It is for their sake, that they might not be deceived by these teachers. They should have commended Him because the fruit of His ministry was born out in their life. Their own life were living testimonies of the impact that he had. And he says there in the text, For in no respect was I inferior to the most eminent apostles. Now some say he's comparing himself to the twelve. The twelve apostles. And others will say, no, he's speaking facetiously. A hint of sarcasm. Saying in effect, well, I'm not inferior to those super apostles, which some of your translations say. Those apostles who have come into Corinth, I'm not inferior to them. Either way, the point is clear. They should have commended him. And even in saying that, Paul says at the end, even though I'm a nobody. Even though I'm a nobody. He wasn't fishing around for a compliment. No, it wasn't like that. Paul humbly recognized. He recognized who he was before God. He reminded the Corinthians of this. Do you remember in the first Corinthians, in the early chapters in chapter 1, he said, Not many of you, not many of you consider your calling. Not many of you were wise. Not many of you were mighty. Not many of you were noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He took ordinary people and he used them for extraordinary things. Paul could compete with the best of them, but he didn't care to. He was just a man. Do you remember what Jesus said when he gave the illustration in Luke 17 of the man who was plowing the field and tending the sheep? Which of you, he says, will say to him when he comes in from the field, Come, immediately sit down to eat. But will he not say to him, this servant, prepare something for me to eat, 
and properly clothe yourself and serve me while I eat and drink. And afterward you may eat and drink. He does not thank the slave because he did the things which were commanded, does he? Implication, no. So you too. When you do all the things which are commanded you, say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. That's who we are. We're unworthy. And that which we do, or given to do, what a privilege it is to do, and by the strength that God provides, we do what we do. And there's no place for our pride. That is the mark of a genuine spiritual leader, one who is humble. That's not to say that they're perfect. Pride shows itself every time we sin, doesn't it? I think of all of the attitudes sometimes I've had, times that I'm, I'm grumpy or times that I have had some sort of irritation or impatience or something like that. And I realize that pride rears ugly head in my heart. And I know the Lord needs to teach me. Paul humbly says, I am a nobody. For a genuine leader is humble and gives glory to God. And in comparison to these false apostles that had come into, into the church at Corinth, Paul talks about the signs of a true apostle. A true apostle. Because these teachers had claimed they're the true apostles. Paul, he doesn't look right. He doesn't speak well. He doesn't do things like he ought to have done. If he would have had things, he would have told you about them. He's a false apostle. Paul says, look, the signs of a true apostle are these. Some today have claimed to be apostles. Some claim to hold to apostolic authority. One group that is prominent today is those who are part of the new apostolic reform movement. It's a movement that's associated with the Pentecostal and Charismatic movements aimed at restoring the prophet and the apostle in the church. And the organization had become very involved in political activism, supporting the former presidential candidate Rick Perry hosting a prayer breakfast. C. Peter Wagner, who taught at Fuller Seminary, writes that the majority of the new apostolic churches quote-unquote, such as his, observe, quote, active ministries of spiritual warfare. As an example of members, supernatural abilities, he calls them, he claims that God acted through him to end mad cow disease in Germany. Somewhat being the de facto leader, you may hear of his name, especially in the area of missions. The Second Apostolic Age began in the year 2001, when according to him, the lost offices of prophet and apostle were restored in this age. Unless you think this is some out backwoods group out in the Midwest or out in Florida, Bruce Wilson in Talk to Action writes, on February 3rd, 2008, C. Peter Wagner, perhaps the most significant leader in the movement, he has named and played a key role in organizing the new apostolic reformation, led a ceremony at Everett, Washington, based such and such church near Seattle for the commissioning of ICA, International Coalition of Apostles. One was instituted as, someone was instituted as the chancellor of the newly founded Wagner Leadership Institute of Seattle. Prior to commissioning this person, Wagner declared, quote, 
The Holy Spirit still speaks to us today and we can hear from the Lord and He gives us information actually that you can't find in any of the 66 books of the Bible even though none of it contradicts the Bible. Unquote. Such a fallacy that something is frequently claimed that there is extra biblical revelation that we need to hear from apostles that have arisen the new age and since 2001 is false. No longer, no longer, they say, is the Bible going to be the final authority, the only authority. No longer is it going to be sufficient. No. Many who claim to be apostles, so you even get these, these, these emails, you know, for, for certain groups and they want to send in all these emails to all the pastors in the area. And some people on the email list, you can see when they don't blind carbon copy, they have the title, Apostle So-and-So. Even in this area. Our faith and our trust is to be reliant solely on the word of God. Not in someone who claims to be a prophet or an apostle. And so Paul here, he outlines, what are the signs of a true apostle? What are the signs of a true apostle? How, what were the qualifications of a person who was called to the office of apostle in the New Testament? Five, at least five things. One, they were specifically called by God. Specifically called by God. Time and time again, when Paul writes in a letter, 1 Corinthians, Romans, Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Timothy, it says, called an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. By the will of God. Paul always reminds people that an apostle was called by God. Secondly, that apostle is appointed by Jesus Appointed by Jesus. He says in Acts 26, For this purpose I have appeared to you, Jesus said to Paul, to appoint you as a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also to the things in which I will appear to you. Romans 1.5 speaks of the same thing. Galatians 1.1 And Apostle Paul was not sent from men, nor through the agency of men, but through Jesus Christ. So a true apostle is called by God, a true apostle is appointed by Jesus. A true apostle, thirdly, is a witness of the resurrected Christ. When Judas had disqualified himself by the betrayal of Christ, Peter got the rest of the eleven together. And in the finding of a replacement, he says in Acts chapter one twenty-one. Therefore it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, Beginning with the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. And Peter said also when he was at Cornelius' house in Acts chapter 10, we are witnesses of all the things he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. In fact, Paul makes this clear when he writes to the Corinthians in the first letter 1 Corinthians 9.1 saying rhetorically, Have I not seen, have I not seen Jesus our Lord? To be a witness of the resurrected Christ was a qualification of an apostle. Fourthly, they were the foundation of the church. A foundation of the church. Ephesians 2.20 says there that they were built, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The church was built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and the foundation of the church was laid when? 
Some 2,000 years ago, when the church was established, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. So not only were they called by God, not only did Jesus appoint them, not only did they have to be witnesses of the resurrected Christ, not only were they the foundation of the church, but in the future, the twelve apostles will have a unique role. The twelve apostles will have a unique role in the future. Matthew 19, Peter says to him, being Christ, Behold, we've left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Similarly, in Revelation 21.14, the wall of the city and twelve foundation stones, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. The fact that they had to be called by God, appointed by Christ, witnesses of the resurrection, laying the foundation in the early church in Ephesians 2.20, the foundation of the church, and in the future having twelve apostles who have unique role. There's the establishment of them. That they had an office that they held that was in the past. There are no longer apostles today. An apostle was somebody who was unique. The twelve plus Paul. As Paul, Jesus appeared to Paul. Some argue that maybe there are more apostles. They use the term apostolos, meaning one who is sent, or a messenger, a sent one. But there is a unique office of the apostle that we're speaking of. That these phony apostles who had come into Corinth were profligating. That they were true apostles. But a second observation from the text, verse 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. You see, it's in comparison to these false apostles to note there were accompanying signs. There were accompanying signs. According to the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, the signs of an apostle are visible things that identify an apostle i.e. the works, the mighty works of the age of redemption. In 1 Corinthians 14.22, tongues are a sign for unbelievers inasmuch as they make evident to them of their unbelief. In 2 Thessalonians 3.17, the sign is a proof of authenticity. It is something visible that confers assurance. And the signs and wonders and miracles here stated in this passage are three ways of saying the same thing. That there are miraculous, supernatural things that God did in order to confirm that they were indeed an authentic messenger of God. A true messenger in the Bible would be followed by miraculous signs that were performed among them. And the, and the verb is a passive verb. It was performed through them. It was the power of God. It wasn't through and in and of themselves. I mean, I remember teaching in, in Uganda and there was, this, there was this lady there in the crowd in this conference. And when I was teaching about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, she was just so upset. And she wagged her finger at me and she said, Are you saying that I cannot just go and I can touch a man and he's healed right there? Mm, Yes. 
God wants to, He can. But it's not by our own power. Signs and wonders and miracles were for the confirmation of the messenger of God. And this was true in the life of Jesus as well. And as you study the Gospels, you'll see the progression of His ministry. Because in the early chapters, say like in the book of, in the book of Matthew, in the early chapters of His ministry... He he preaches and he has profound words and people are astounded and it's characterized by the Sermon on the Mount, by his depth of knowledge and teaching and wisdom. And then in his ministry he begins to do more healing and miracles and signs in confirmation of his message. Then he's accused. He's accused of having that power of coming from Satan then he withdraws and spends more time with the twelve preparing them for the ministry they have ahead preparing and speaking in parables miracles in the scriptures happened happened when they were when they were intense times periods when revelation was given from Moses to Joshua, or from Elijah and Elisha, during the ministry of Christ and the apostles, a great revelation from God was coming out, and prophets or apostles, and you'll note that the miracles punctuated these periods of time of God's revelation in order that they might confirm the message as well as the messenger. Hebrews chapter 2, if you turn your Bibles there, is helpful for us to look at. Help Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. The writer doesn't want them to be taken by some angel or some other teaching. And he says in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, he says, For this reason, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard and not drift away so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them. How? Both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. God testified of those who spoke the divine word to them. God testifies of the authenticity of His messengers. B.B. Warfield, the great Presbyterian professor of the past generation, in 1898 wrote, Miracles do not appear on the pages vagrantly, here, there, and elsewhere, indifferently, without a signable reason. They belong to revelation periods and appear only when God is speaking to His people through accredited messengers, declaring His gracious purpose. Their abundant display in the apostolic church is the mark of the richness of the apostolic age in Revelation. Now, that's not to say that God does not do miracles or has never done a miracle outside of those times. But it certainly isn't normative today. They're not your everyday occurrence. So it's important to understand what a miracle is. Because some people think that any surprising thing is a miracle. 
Some say, well, I was at the mall and it was Black Friday and I prayed for a parking space and boom, one showed up right there, right in front of me. What a miracle. That would be if you saw that car float up and then disappear. Others, they may be thinking, boy, if I win the lottery, it's a miracle. Some of you parents probably argue with me and say, well, it would be a miracle if my kid got straight A's. I believe a miracle, though, a miracle is something that is that happens when natural law is suspended by the power of God in order to execute some supernatural event. It is some event in which God intervenes and supernaturally suspends the natural order of things and He punctuates it with a miraculous event. Whether it's the virgin birth or whether it's a miraculous healing or even the salvation of an individual which happens in our world. The transformation of a life is a miracle of God. But if you win a prize, you find your lost keys, you're walking outside and there's $50 on the ground, and that's called the providence of God. The provision of God. God provides answers to prayer. God provides funds for needed to pay bills. God encourages us. He blesses us. He helps us along. God provides and the providence and the hand of God. But it's also to say that every supernatural event is not always from and of God as well. Supernatural events can be falsified. There will be false prophets. As I mentioned in Hebrews, that is why we must pay closer attention. Closer attention to what we know so that we don't drift away from it. Because there will be false Christ. In the future there will be false teachers, false leaders that will fabricate signs and wonders to amaze people. And even last weekend as we were learning about the health, wealth and prosperity gospel movement. We were learning about faith healers and how they falsify. They can falsify healings and dupe people into thinking that they themselves have a power that others others need to follow them because of that power. And in Paul's warning, his statement here, he comes with an attitude of humility, saying, look, that the, that the signs of an apostle... The signs of an apostle follow true apostles. And I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a nobody. He saw himself in a humble state. To the very least of all saints, he says of himself in Ephesians 3.8. Grace was given to preach to the Gentiles. Second distinctive of a true spiritual leader is the love and integrity. Their love and integrity. Verse 13 to 18. He shares with them, he shares with them his heart. And he opens this section of text. And I love the section of text. Because of his love, even though he defends his integrity, it's likely that he had some trumped up charges against him. These false teachers were perhaps profligating this idea that, oh, Paul is going to take this special offering for the poor in Jerusalem. And in reality, he might be lining his own pockets he might be taking a little bit out or whatnot for himself. But Paul says to them, in effect, look, when I came to you, I was never a burden to you. 
I was never a burden to you. In fact, the opposite is true. And he uses an analogy there of parents and children. In this case, it is dependent children. It's not going to be dependent children who are responsible to save up for their parents, but parents for their children under whom they still have charge. He was willing to, and it says there, spend, meaning to spend freely and to be expended for their soul. And his perspective was this, that whatever the personal expense, whatever the personal sacrifice, whatever the personal cost, it didn't matter. It didn't matter to him. What mattered was their soul because he loved them and he cared for them. And he uses the axiomatic saying of parents because that's what parents do. That's what parents will give of themselves. They will save and they will give to their children because they love their children. It's the natural thing to do. You work hard and you save up and you feed your children. And that is the heart of a pastor or a spiritual parent as well. That they're willing to give of themselves. They give and are willing to suffer whatever it takes because they love the church. And that is how it is in ministry. I remind our deacons here. I remind our deacons every so often from time to time, aside from walking with God, that I expect them to do a couple of things. One is to pray for the church every day. To pray for the church every day. And two, to love the people that God has granted us authority over. You see, being a a person who is a leader in the church, it's not about power or, or position or having a say in the expenditure of funds. That's how a false teacher would look at things. They would look at it like a CEO of a company who has some sort of grip. False teachers, when things get hard, when sacrifices or persecution come, they quit. They withdraw, they give up, they give in, I give in. Um, They're not willing to say, like Paul said, I'm going to be spending and expended to serve. Because, what? The validity of his ministry was his very life that he gave for them. He cared about their soul. He cared about their lives. And he was willing to suffer, to sacrifice, and to spend for their soul like a parent would for their own child. Many of you have just come back from a missions trip and many of you have been overseas before and you know that when you go, it is a sacrifice of your vacation time, of your money, of your comforts when you very well could be doing something else. But Lord willing, you're not thinking about all of those things. Lord willing, you're thinking about what a privilege it is to serve. That God has granted to me, this and I have a responsibility. Because to whom much has been given, much is required. The attitude is to give, to serve, to sacrifice oneself so the souls of others will be blessed. And that's our question as well for us as we look at this text. What are we willing to do for the church that Christ died to save? What are we willing to sacrifice for the people whom Jesus sacrificed His life for? Are we willing to be inconvenienced? Or are we willing to do things that are humble? Are we willing to do what it might be even though we might suffer for it? Or do we look for any and all excuses not to? See, the bottom line is, if we love God and we love 
people. That it won't be a sacrifice. It won't be a burden. We love and we give. We serve. We suffer. We sacrifice for what we think is valuable. Your kids can tell. Your kids can tell when you give them a gift, if you really want to give it to them. Your kids can tell if you go and visit them at a ball game or a play or whatever, if you truly want to be there or not. Same is true when we serve others. When we go on a mission trip, when we serve in the church, you can fool people sometimes. You can never fool God. And Paul's motivation was that he loved them and he shares his heart here in this passage. Certainly I'm taking advantage of you, have I? No, the implication is. Certainly I sent Titus and when I said Titus, I sent a brother with him. So that integrity might be withheld, right? Yes. Certainly I loved you. And should I love you more? Should I be loved less? No. The implication is clear. He loved the church and he was willing to suffer for their souls. For Christ did that. John Piper in his meditation on Psalm 119.71 entitled Luther, Bunyan, Bible and Pain. It's a reminder of that truth, of the value of suffering. From 1660 to 1672, John Bunyan, the English Baptist preacher and author of Pilgrim's Progress, was in the Bedford County Jail. Could have been released if he had agreed not to preach. He did not know which was worse, the pain of the condition or the torment of freely choosing it in view of what it cost his wife and four children, his daughter Mary, was blind. She was ten when he was put in jail in 1660. He wouldn't be released, as I mentioned, for another twelve years. He writes, The parting with my wife and poor children, literally poor as he was impoverished, hath often been to me in this place as the pulling of the flesh from my bones. Not only because I am somewhat too fond of these great mercies, but also because I often brought to my mind the many hardships, miseries, and wants that my poor family was like to meet with should I be taken from them, especially my poor blind child who lay nearer my heart than all I had besides. Oh, the thought of the hardship I thought my blind one might go under would break my heart to pieces, unquote. But this broken bunion was seeing treasures in the word of God because of his suffering. And he would probably not have it any other way. He was discovering the meaning of Psalm 119.71, quote, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Quote, I had never had in all my life so great an inlet of the Word of God as now in prison. The scriptures that I saw nothing in before are made in this place to shine upon me. Jesus Christ also was never more real and apparent than now. Here I have seen Him and felt Him indeed. I have seen such things here that I am persuaded I shall never, while in this world, be able to express 
being very tender of me, God hath not suffered me to be molested, but would with one scripture and another strengthen me against all, insomuch that I have often said, were it lawful I could pray for greater trouble, for the greater comfort's sake." Unquote. It is good for me. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. We share in the privilege of being children of God, don't we? We share in the privilege of the eternal life. We share and want and desire, as it says in Philippians, the power of His resurrection, but also the fellowship of His suffering. But then we can say, as Paul wrote right before this, your grace is sufficient for me, for power is perfected in weakness. Paul here says, look, the marks of a genuine leader, and he displays them, are their humility and characterized by their love and their integrity. He doesn't have some Messiah complex thinking that he's some big shot, but he loves the Lord and he loved the church for whom Christ died and he loved the people that he served and the love of Christ and the love for others motivates us to serve and to give and to give our lives, to be willing to suffer and sacrifice for the sake of the gospel. And if there's no willingness to suffer, no willingness to sacrifice, no willingness to give of yourself, what does that say about your heart and your own love? You can't say, well, I love Jesus or I love the church and never be willing to give of yourself. Do you love the church? Christ did. Christ loved the people of God such that He died for them. He died for you and for me. What's our focus when we come? We come to church this morning. We come to worship the Lord. What is our heart? Is our heart because, well, I'm come to get. That's true. We do. But we come to give. We come to bless. We come because we're willing to what? Be a blessing to others because of what God has blessed us with. That we're willing to suffer and sacrifice. And I pray that we might be people who are humbly serving God. Out of humility and out of truth. As Paul says, that's what shows a genuine believer, a genuine leader, a genuine person who is of the body of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, oh God, we pray that our eyes, our eyes might not be so much so on ourselves. How we feel, how convenienced we are, all that we have to do, the tasks that we have, the things that we own, what we want to buy. Lord, I pray that our eyes might be fixed upon you, that, Father, you might reign supreme in our heart, that, Father, we might always remember, O oh God, that you had sent your Son to die for the body of Christ for the church to suffer because of your great love. And we pray, O oh Father, that we might have that love as well, a love for one another, a love for the people of God, a love for the lost, motivated, Father, to serve and to sacrifice because of a love for you. 
In Jesus' name, amen.